everybody. Welcome to another edition of Heated and Loaded. This is Banks coming to you from a rainy North Carolina. And my co-host Davis is in D.C. Davis, how are you doing tonight? Man, doing all right. Just uh, living the dream here in uh, the DMV. And happy to be here. Glad to hear that. We are on episode four now. Hard to believe we made it this far. Thank you to everybody last week in episode three who chimed in uh, following our podcast about a very important topic, 90s pro sports uniforms. Uh, we had a lot of feedback, and rightfully so, and really glossed on some of the ones we missed. So shout out to uh, everybody who engaged with us on our Instagram page, at He Didn't Loaded. Uh, Davis, I think we were talking about it just a moment ago. We had some really good ones we completely missed out on. Yeah, there was the Sean Kemp Cavs uniforms, uh, which – was like the jagged blue thing that was kind of wild. I think, I think was was great. was great. Uh, someone else, I think it was, uh, I think it was Bengals fan Steve, uh, who is a regular mention on this podcast by this point, <laughs> mentioned the '94 World Cup. I think that that uh, and there's the the red, white, and blue stars and stripes thing. And then another uh, guy in Oxford, Gray Flora, mentioned the super niche, very specific Nets alternate from 1990. I had never seen it before, but man, was it worth looking at. Bring that back. Come on, Brooklyn. Yes. Bring that back in some capacity. So thank you to everybody who tuned in on that and really engaged with us. We'll try to do more uh, pieces on that platform for you guys to engage with. And thank you for everyone who has so far. We have a great show for you guys tonight. We have a actual beat writer who's employed to cover a sports team, which is a first for our podcast Ben Portnoy from the Columbus Dispatch in Mississippi will be joining us. He focuses on Mississippi State in his reporting. We talk all things sports happening right now. So he's a great guest. Check that out at the end of our conversation. But first, Davis, unfortunately, we got to the very end of one of the best documentary series we've seen in a long time, The Last Dance. What were your thoughts coming out of that? Uh, I mean, it lived up to the hype. You know, I think we can get into a little bit more about its, like, legacy, the uh, – but uh, I think that uh, it was an enjoyable 10 hours, you know, but uh, I, I'm, I'm really happy that, that we were able to, you know, experience it and share it together with all of our friends. It's so amazing that we had this global pandemic and then this documentary teed up, not exactly fully edited, but almost ready to go. And it answered the bell for us. And we had a chance to really uh, see Michael Jordan in a different side, regardless of the fact that if it's a journalism piece, or if it's propaganda, it's one of the best pieces we've seen in a long time. And I think it lived up to the hype and the quality that a story like MJ deserved. Absolutely. Uh, and what's crazy, you mentioned it. I think episode 10 was finished like the weekend before it aired. So like they, they were they were pushing the envelope on that one. And man, I'm glad they got it done because it was great. <laughs> and, and not many people are aware, like editing a video, it's not like you're filming a YouTube or anything real quick. That, that takes some time. So the fact that they... they uh, developed this and made it to what it became. It was really impressive. So uh, kudos to everybody at ESPN for making that happen. A lot of really interesting takeaways from episode nine and 10. We talked about this Davis offline that this was for our personal experiences, some of the most vivid memories of real time watching Michael Jordan and the Bulls of that era was kind of that 97, 98 window that they really focused in on. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I was texting my mom while I was watching uh, nine and 10 and particularly on nine, because I remember I was at Boy Scout camp whenever the Bulls won their fifth championship. And I actually had to get a letter in the mail from my mom to tell me that the 
Bulls had won because I wasn't at home to watch it. I didn't make the same mistake the next year. But um, yeah, I mean, that's that's the like era that I remember and, and vividly remember about Michael Jordan. You know, like we've mentioned a lot, you know, we don't we weren't quite old enough for the first repeat, but the second repeat were, I mean, they're etched in my mind. Um, it, it, it not, but I also found that uh, maybe they, I didn't know as much as I thought I did because, you know, as, as the doc goes into, there are things I just didn't remember. Yeah, it really dove in on some topics that, you know, we, we think of the shot and the flu game and things of that nature. And some of those were fully explained and, and really uh, in real detail, which is great. But just uh, like you said, Scotty Pippen, for example, being hurt yeah. that particular game, don't exactly remember that being the case. Um, again, we were probably too young to really be aware of what's happening at that point in time. Just uh, some of those other situations, the fact that Michael Jordan had a lot of things going on behind the scenes we weren't fully aware of, like his, uh, you know, one of his security members uh, going through a tough sickness and a battle there, and then some other teammates having their own problems they're working through, which they told about, like Steve Kerr, for example, and, and some others. Yeah, and the, the Steve Kerr thing I found really interesting. I mean, I had known that story. I think I'd listened to Steve Kerr talk about it once in the past few years, and he's become pretty vocal, um, kind of politically, but just a vocal uh, person involved in the NBA now. You see why. Yeah, he's eloquent. He's thoughtful. He's interesting. He's got a great story, and he's and he's the fact that he can become the person he's been, you know, he is, despite the tragedy, is, I think, a testament to him and his character. But, you know, I, I think a, a big thing that I didn't remember, and I think it was how serious of a threat the Pacers were to the Bulls. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, you know, I remember Reggie Miller, and I remember them being good. And I remember in 2000, they go to the finals and get stomped by the, by the juggernaut that was the Lakers. But I, I didn't realize, and I think Reggie said it in that, it was that he thought they were the better team than the Bulls in, 90, yeah. in 98. And I thought that was great. I loved hearing that shade. And I, Michael Jordan very much disagreed, and he let him know at the end of the series. But I thought that the Pacers were fascinating. I mean, Chris Mullen was on that team. I had forgotten that Chris Mullen was a Pacer, mm-hmm. like, and a, ball, a bald Chris Mullen, too. So uh, <laughs> I thought that was kind of shocking and a little overweight, too. But I, they, they, uh, they were a really good team and, and deep. Jalen Rose is on that team. I mean, they had some great players. Rick Smiths. Yeah, probably yeah. a forgotten team from the late, from the late 90s. Just because yeah. they, they ran into the Bulls. It was a great ending encapsulation to what was a stellar career and really uh, dove into a lot of the different conversations we've been leading up to the past three to four weeks. Um, some other takeaways from that. Really, I want to give a shout out to Dennis Rodman for living up uh, every 90s kid's fantasy. At the same time, he won a world championship with the Chicago Bulls in the 90s. So that by itself, pretty amazing. He was a simultaneously a member of the NWO. Incredible. And then he was dating Carmel Electra all at the same time. Like, yeah, I mean, that's like that? the triple, that's the triple crown. I'm pretty sure the 90s triple crown. Outside of having your own McDonald's inside of your house, like what more could you ask for as a 90s kid? That that I, was it. Yeah, I don't know, man. I he, you know, we've we've made a little bit about uh you know, some of our favorite podcasters talking about, uh, talking about Dennis Rodman not being that interesting. Um, I, like that episode alone, the guy just disappears and goes and wrestles in the middle of the finals. Like, how is that not interesting? It's maybe selfish, but it's certainly interesting. 
it might be tired to some, but I think it's very interesting and it still deserves to be told uh, to a different generation. And a lot of it because uh, you wouldn't see that today. That would not happen. It would not be allowed to happen. And they fostered that because they knew they had such a good thing going and they had to make this run out to uh, the end of the year. Yeah, how many Gen Zers knew what the NWO was? Like how many of the people in that, in that, 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 uh, Dennis Rodman was with, with, with Hogan, like how many people could he name or could not, he could Gen Zers name. I think that's really interesting. This is introducing not just more about the bulls, but more about what we've been saying the whole time is that this documentary is incredible because it, it's not just about this very specific basketball team. It's about everything that, that went along with it. And it like, there were shockwaves throughout, you know, our culture based on this team. That, that's so cool. That's so, like, that's just not something it's, you know, a lot of people have, monoculture is something we don't really have anymore this was the monoculture the, the, the 90s chicago bulls yeah you uh juxtapose that with steve kerr and his situation <laughs> and uh, you hear his story and it's just like man everyone is so fascinating it has more of a story than we realized i think coming into this particular series yeah because it was all about michael jordan you know and we weren't paying attention to these other people and and it's a shame because we, otherwise, we wouldn't have known about this incredible story about Steve Kerr. And it, it's a tragedy, but it's also, I think, what he was able to achieve despite it is, is, is something that should be celebrated. You know, this doc confirmed to me what I think personally nothing changed coming out of this compared to what I thought going into it about MJ and his legacy. We all probably have our own opinions about it. Who's the real GOAT? It's a generational thing at times. But this is almost like a closing argument for MJ fans, this documentary. It felt like at the end of the day, after watching this 10 episode series, what else needs to be said to explain why Michael Jordan's the greatest of all time? Well, we could maybe talk about things that weren't said and we could talk about the fact that he came back three years later and for a pretty bad uh, Wizards team. Um, but I think that just is more of the, goes back to Jordan's like hyper competitiveness and kind of bitterness at times, you know, will it, like he had a list of players that he wanted to beat and, some of them were players he hadn't really tested himself against. So, but I, other than that, like, I don't know what we could, uh, what else could be said. I, th I think that the documentary covered so much and obviously it was 10 hours long. Uh, it was, uh, you know, I also think the timing is interesting. And I think we've touched on this before, but, you know, Jordan approved this documentary on the heels of LeBron winning his first title in Cleveland. So on his third official full, I mean, his third mm -hmm. title overall, but his first one in Cleveland. Uh, LeBron was gaining some steam on the in the pop culture talking about who's the best and I think that uh, our, our buddy uh, MJ uh, wanted to make sure that he had you know a last word yeah and, and he, as well he should it will be interesting to see what happens with the rest of LeBron's career um, you could argue because he's been at different markets and different teams and he's done what he has done and accomplished many great things like championships to the level of MJ he has an argument but I think this documentary really gives insight into the will and how Michael not only had physical attributes that were second to none, his mental capacity and how that evolved over time really stood out, I think, in the 97 and the 98 series. Um, it's been touched on a little bit, but it was just really fascinating to see how he thought about the game and how that translated into how he willed himself to win championships, despite not being at the best physical shape of his entire career. Yeah, I mean, I think the 98 final in game six with Scottie Pippen hurt. And he is over there, like, saving his energy, basically. Jordan is trying to make sure that he's wow. able to finish the game. 
I mean, that's, that's like guile, you know, like that's a, that's wiliness that, that maybe he wouldn't have had uh, in 91 or 92 or in late eighties. It, it's something that comes with age and, you know, it's, it's, it's wisdom. It's, it, it, it's, it was pretty impressive to see. Agreed. Really also um, just again, encapsulating everything that happened and you hit the nail on the head with the Phil Jackson, apparently uh, asking everyone to uh, write a poem or explain their whole emotional feelings about the team and where they want to leave things. The fact that there wasn't a whole lot of communication with the ownership and Michael Jordan to this day about what went down. That was astounding. I I still can't believe such a great era of basketball happened and MJ specifically delivered so much for that franchise, yet there was no communication about it for 20 years. That's wild. I mean, that's what he said was that he has still hasn't talked to Jerry Reinsdorf about it, but he was, he was disappointed and probably angry and rightfully so that year, whenever they broke up the team, which is just insane. It's, 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 it's beyond belief that you wouldn't want to run it back with that, with whatever parts of that team that you could put together and tell me that veteran players, what, you know, Scotty Pippen's probably gone. Rodman's probably done either retired or not, not as good anymore, but there are probably plenty of veteran players who come over on the minimum contract to play with Michael Jordan and, and Phil Jackson, because that was the package deal. It's crazy to me that they wanted to break it up. You know, another thing about this, the big takeaway, as we said, this was a Michael Jordan approved thing. And I think uh, Ryan Rosillo said this on his podcast with Bill Simmons this week, but I think it's worth repeating. It's that, you know, Jordan, or at least expounding on Jordan showed that he might be the most authentic athlete that we have Mm -hmm. and have ever had, you know, LeBron James, it would have been a much more um, controlled uh, narrative for him. I think that he would have been a lot less willing to be honest and, and expose some of maybe the uglier sides of him, the way Jordan was willing to do that. Not that Jordan said anything awful about himself or really indicted himself or anything, but, or incriminate himself. But I think that it was interesting that Jordan was willing to dive into those things because he felt that it was necessary for you to see the full picture of him. And like that authenticity is something is just, it doesn't exist in today's NBA. Did he need to have his, his true self be told or did he simply just not care? I think that he is, I think, that, I don't know that he needed it. I think that he, and I don't know that he doesn't care. I think he cares about his legacy, but I, I think that he is just, like I said, I think he's just honest. I think he's a genuine, like, this is who I am. Take me or leave me. And I think that um, the viewers probably around the country, as long as they're not Pistons, Pacers, or Jazz fans, so like, you know, all 12 of them, uh, they probably are they probably take Michael Jordan and prefer this version of Michael Jordan to the, you know, like scientifically test tube developed LeBron James answers that, you know, are focus grouped and all, all other things to make sure that he looks the best all the time. I mean, yeah. I think that I, I just think Jordan's a lot more interesting because of it. Agreed. It's refreshing to have someone at that stature who has really no reason to put himself out there, put himself out there yeah. and really, authentic in that way you don't see that anymore and I don't think we will unfortunately um hopefully maybe this brings about more of those conversations and maybe it's from other um, eras or other players from different leagues that's not basketball related but it feels like basketball right now specifically is all about the brand about the image and all about controlling the narrative where at times like that gets old and tiring I, I think 
you could argue like the NFL and even Major League Baseball at times can be more uh, intriguing is maybe the right word, just because you know you're going to get an authentic perspective of it's not from this filter, it's not from some agent uh, coming through their lens, it's really from the player itself because they put a lot of heart and soul into it. Well, and I think that's interesting too because the NBA, the reason the NBA has become so popular in the last decade or you know, 15 years or so, is mm-hmm. because of the access to the players, right? We, we have like grown to know these players off the court just as much as we've grown to know them on the court because of social media and you know, internet and all the other things that go along with it. Just access has increased. But as the access has increased and as time has gone on, they've become less and less authentic. You're seeing less and less of their real selves, which to me is, you know, I came to the NBA excited because I like learning more and seeing what these players are doing on and off the court. But now it's just like, I don't know. It's sterile. It's not as fun. And, and I think, it's, like you said, it's the brand thing. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, the thing is, I, I also, Michael, I mean, excuse me, LeBron James, an honest LeBron James documentary like this would be fascinating. LeBron mm-hmm. James has an incredible story. And, and, he, and he's done some incredible things. He seems like a wonderful father, like genuinely. Uh, he seems very generous to his community. Uh, he get, but I, I just... And also he's got an incredible, like his, his background, he's a single parent in Akron, Ohio. Like there's stuff there that would be really interesting to dive into. Um, but I, I don't know that we'll ever really get this level from, from LeBron. And it's sad that well, you know so many of those details. Like that's kind of part of the deal. It's like he couldn't just do that. He has to tell you about what he does. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I, I, I get like the positive – aspects of him telling that to the general public but at the same time i do also appreciate just as a sports fan consuming this content it's refreshing just to have someone who's so good at their sport and that's their entire focus i think that's kind of fascinating we will never get that again yeah i mean that's true i don't think we will have that again it's also um it really speaks to just the that was the end of the mj era as people have coined it because it naturally led to the lockout that we had talked about before and and it really um, kind of created this natural gap between that era of the 90s into what it became, um, AI and a lot of the players um, starting to maybe just move around to different teams and leagues just to get that championship they sought after. It, it kind of reminds me of, like, you just mentioned, why didn't MJ give that extra year to the Bulls and, and try to figure out some sort of way to get some free agents to come over there? We also saw the flip side of that. We saw the Carl Malone and Gary Payton just go to the Lakers to try to get a ring, and, and that didn't work out too well. And then you saw a lot of other players just kind of move around the league and, and not get championships or, or really not live out the legacy they could have. Scotty Pippen comes to mind. Despite his great run with the Bulls, he also had some moments there at the end where you're kind of questioning those decisions when it came to his free agency. So I, I just think it was kind of a lost league after Michael Jordan left and probably have a great documentary about that era because of everything from uh, the Malice of the Palace to the free agency I just mentioned happened in that period. Yeah, and I think that uh, that would be a fantastic thing to learn more about because there are some really good players in that window. And and it's also, I think it's uh, notable that, you know, a player that was there who's a top, I think a top 10 player, and maybe we can get into rankings next week of like how this impacts the league or how we view the league generally or more broadly rather. But Kobe Bryant was around that entire window of time. Mm-hmm. and that early part of Kobe's career and everyone remembers Kobe positive, like fondly now, or a lot of people think of him fondly and all that has to do with his tragic death. But there was a long stretch of his career. People didn't like Kobe Bryant and me included it's yeah. And it's just it, me either. 
but it was, it's very interesting that a charismatic person who mimicked everything about, like he tried to be Michael Jordan, couldn't capture our, our imagination the way that Jordan could. And, right. and you're right. It was a lost era. And a lot of it is the player empowerment movement, player empower, player empowerment um, movement that has kind of, that we are fully, you know, comfortable with and, and see now, but it was really taking off then. Um, it's a, it's a it's a shame that, that the league went was lost for so long, but it's it's a testament to Michael Jordan. Yeah, more to come on that. What we're going to do now is actually shift a little bit of a focus. We mentioned the front end, got a great guest tonight. We have Ben Portnoy coming on. I would love to talk more with him about the last dance as well as just some other things happening in sports today. We are welcoming on a very special guest from down in the Golden Triangle. It is Ben Portnoy, the Mississippi State Athletics beat reporter for the Columbus Dispatch. How you doing, Ben? What's going on, guys? Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Thanks hey, for being hey. here. It's always a pleasure to have a Mississippi State beat writer come on our show. Um, personally, I love that. So, very excited to catch up with you and see how things are going down in Mississippi. Yeah, happy to be here. Excited to uh, talk some sports. Plenty of stuff to go over. So, I'm, uh, I'm excited for you guys to have me. I figure we start off, how do you know Davis? That's how we got you on the show. Maybe we should go into that to start off with. Davis, you want to start or, or you want me to kick this one yeah, off? Yeah, sure. So uh, Ben is uh, can maybe go into his bio a little bit, but he's a D.C. native. And uh, his cousin is a good friend of mine here in D.C. And uh, he got married uh, last summer in, in Newport, Rhode Island, and was like, hey, my cousin is moving to Starkville. Uh, knowing that I had spent some time in Starkville, we ought to introduce you. So sure enough, we're at this, you know, big mafioso wedding in Newport, Rhode Island at the house they filmed Great Gatsby with uh, Robert Redford. And uh, I am introduced to to Ben and and now Ben and I, I, he's my inside track to the Mississippi State Athletic Department. I probably send him too many text messages, but, um, you know, we're we're excited to have him. It's, It's exciting to have him here. Yeah, it was a good time. I think we were standing smoking cigars and 20 minutes turned into about three hours. And I think Davis's wife was looking for him. I think my parents wondered where the hell I had wandered off to. And that's, that's pretty much how that went. Yeah. That's cool. Well, I figure we dive into a few topics pretty relevant right now. I think first off, just uh, we're obviously in a very crazy time, Ben, uh, when it comes to just normalcy in America. One of the things that we're all looking to or to and towards is potentially having college sports coming back in a timely fashion, especially college football for a lot of our listeners. What has this period been like for you just covering this particular topic and how to navigate it? Yeah, it's definitely, uh, you know, you'd think in a pandemic things would slow down a little bit, but frankly, it's been kind of insane and uh, a lot going on uh, at Mississippi State just in particular. I mean, you had a women's basketball coaching change from Vic Schaefer to Mickey McCray Penson and that created a lot of uh, a lot of news for a couple of weeks among other things Mike Leach obviously coming to Mississippi State has been a big thing all spring and getting to know his staff and that kind of thing but I think frankly like I think it's funny because people say you know there's no games being played and that obviously brings plenty of content but the reality is there's a lot still going on I mean recruiting is still going on even though there's a moratorium on uh, you know having recruits on campus and that kind of thing but um, there really is a lot going on and a lot really happening in the sports world, even if though there's no one actually playing games. I think that can be a kind of misconception that because there are no games, sports writers aren't doing anything. <laughs> um, you know, that said, I've still had, you know, five to seven stories a week in the paper. So 
as far as I'm concerned, work's still going and chugging along. Differences, I'm sitting at my house instead of in a press box. So it's uh, <laughs> it's still busy, but uh, keeping up and, uh, yeah, happy to be busy. And Ben, tell us how you ended up in Starkville. Yeah, so kind of crazy story. I uh, graduated from Indiana in the uh, fall of 2018. Um, was ready to, uh, was going to do an internship in, D- in uh, Indianapolis that summer. Looked at a few jobs here and there, but, uh, you know, applied to this one out of the blue. About two, three weeks later, I had a job and I was moving to Mississippi. So that's, I've been here uh, just over a year now. Uh, I think, I guess, March, mid-March was my one-year anniversary, give or take. So it's been a little crazy, but uh, no, it's been a good time. Starkville's treated me well. People here are great, and uh, it's been a fun team to cover. And never a dull moment <laughs> around here. It's been pretty wild the last uh, the last year. I've had a couple of coaching changes, an NCAA investigation, and uh, you know, SEC football is a whole thing in itself. So it's been about as much as one could jam pack into a year as possible. So it's been pretty wild. And a college world series run. And a college world series <laughs> run. Yes, Omaha, fantastic. That was easily. I got to say, like. College baseball is one of those things that, don't get me wrong, I love baseball, enjoy watching it. I won't pretend to be the biggest baseball guy in the world, fanatic, whatever. Covering college baseball down here is unlike anything I'd ever seen. I've probably had more fun covering that team than anything else I've done. This isn't a knock on anything else. I've loved everything I've done. But, you know, the college baseball scene down here is awesome. There's really nothing like it, you know, like a game at Duty Noble and everything. And the new stadium's been great. Um, Chris Limonis, who's the head coach at State now, was at Indiana when I was there. Um, so that was kind of a cool connection among others. Uh, but yeah, no, it's been awesome. It's college baseball down here is something else and it's a whole other animal. And Omaha was, Omaha was a really, really cool experience. Well, not, you know, not specific to sports, but what's it like moving from, you know, DC Bloomington, um, to, to, to Starkville to, I mean, to Mississippi generally, which is, you know, Banks and I both Mississippi expats. Um, it's an interesting place and, a great place. We obviously love it, but uh, it's, it's, it's not. Got a tattoo to my arm and everything, man. <laughs> That's right. It's, it's definitely not DC or even, you know, Bloomington. What's so what's it like been moving to Mississippi? Like not just Mississippi, but a small town in Mississippi. Yeah, it's definitely been unique. I mean, I think I find, you know, sometimes I can get a little restless and stuff, but I think that, you know, overall it's a really friendly atmosphere. It's definitely a little different. Obviously uh, uh, Davis, you know, my cousin Chase, obviously they're from down in Kentucky. We spent a lot of time in North Carolina and Virginia as well. And my mom, our fa- my parents' family is from the South. So I at least had some idea of what I was getting into to an extent, but it's definitely different. Um, you know, small towns, a little different than DC or, you know, I was living in Chicago for a couple of years as well there. So it's definitely been, uh, <laughs> it's been a transition. Definitely. It's a little bit smaller than what I'm used to, but at the same time, Starkville's a college town. It's a fun place. Um, you know, I've made good friends here and play a lot of golf. So. It's hard to the food's about. better, right? The food's great. I mean, it's expanded my waistline probably about eight inches. <laughs> other than that, it's great. I, you know, I, I need to get on a run or something. I was going to do that before we did this, but I kind of was like, yeah, well, I'll sit and <laughs> open another Dr. Pepper or whatever. But You're fitting into uh, Mississippi already. This is great. Yeah. Seriously, yeah, it's been great. <laughs> so, a couple more, couple more years, you're going to have diabetes. It'll be, it'll be perfect. <laughs> yeah, it's been a little wild, but it's definitely a different, different from what I grew up with, but um, I think I've picked it up, <laughs> picked up an accent a little bit. I, you know, I say y'all pretty much as consistently as anyone. So I guess I've, I guess I've been indoctrinated to some extent. Uh, so it's been fun. You know, it was funny. I was on the phone with my dad a few weeks ago, or maybe even a couple months ago now, but I forget what I said. I said fixing to, or something like that. And my dad being from Manhattan was like, what the hell did you just say? <laughs> so <laughs> that was uh that was a fun reminder that, uh, that <laughs> I don't quite, uh, 
quite have all the same uh, lingo as everyone else, but it, it's been fun. I really do enjoy it, and it's been a good time. I mean, it's hard to complain too much. That's good. What about comparisons from Indiana, the Big Ten, to in the SEC? Just beyond the fanaticism, just how the leagues operate, how maybe certain programs operate in certain sports compared to what you grew up with or what you were in the college space. What, what were some noticeable differences there? Yeah, I think, like, for me personally, I think it was interesting because, I mean, I grew up in a Michigan family. Both my parents went to Michigan. I grew up with Big Ten football. Um, you know, as Michigan basketball got better, that obviously became a thing. But, you know, went to Indiana's big basketball school. And, frankly, like, when I was looking at schools, like, most of the schools I looked at, I always joked that, you know, when I was deciding between schools, it was mostly between Indiana, Clemson, and Georgia. So I decided to pick the one school that fired its football and basketball coach within a year and a half of me being there. So <laughs> it, it was kind of wild. But I, I've always said that, you know, I really wanted to be in some kind of football atmosphere. I think football is what I enjoy doing. But, like, being down here – people talk about the SEC, you know, people joke about they just means more or whatever you want to call it. Like the SEC is really interesting and really unique in that sense. Cause I think that the, the fanaticism definitely is a whole thing in itself. But I think that just, I, I think there's something innately interesting about places like a Starkville or an Oxford or a Tuscaloosa or Auburn. I mean, there's just something really interesting about these towns that, you know, on a Saturday afternoon in the fall, draw 150,000 people there for, no other reason than to watch a football game and it's not a knock on these towns I think they're awesome places but it's just really cool how you have these small towns that all of a sudden become like you know metropolises for one afternoon in the fall and it's kind of crazy and there's something really cool about that um and just kind of the culture around it I mean obviously you know covering games I'm not out in junction or anything like that but you definitely get to see it you get to feel, get the smells walking into the stadium and that kind of thing and it's really really cool I mean you know, people always joke about the cowbells. And I will say, like, it, it was definitely a little deafening at first. And it took me about a game to get used to it. But, like, I think it's one of the cooler things out there. I mean, you know, Mississippi State does this thing at the beginning of the fourth quarter. And I think a couple other schools do something comparable. But, you know, they play Don't Stop Believing and everyone starts clanging the cowbells at the same time. And you see lights all over the stadium. And it's just really cool because, you know, I, like I said, I went to Indiana where the football games are less relevant despite the fact that the team's been better in recent years. But the point is, it's just different. And it's really cool to see how people get behind their teams and just sort of the fanaticism behind it and the culture behind it. Because I think it's just really innately interesting and very different from anywhere else in the country. What has surprised you about moving to the SEC or just moving to Mississippi or, or whatever? I think that it's the fact that people care always in the sense that people don't ever turn it off. Like when football season's over, it doesn't depend. And people say, okay, whatever, we'll wait till next year. It's a 24 seven thing. I mean, people want to know what's next. People want to know what's happening in the building, even now when nothing's happening, nothing's happening. So I, I think it's this, that it's persistent. It never ends. And I think that's awesome because for me, you know, I love when people are reading my, the stuff that I'm putting out there, but at the same time, it's kind of crazy just how, how incessant it is. I mean, I definitely, you know, being in covering Indiana basketball when I was at IU and things like that, you get a big taste of that just because, I mean, it is a blue blood program and, you know, comparable to whatever you want to call it, Kentucky's and Carolinas and Dukes of the world. I mean, those programs always have a following, but SEC football is like that and that it never turns off. People are always curious what's happening, even when like sometimes there isn't anything happening, but at the same time, like it, it is kind of crazy how people are always saying, you know, 
if you have a down year, it's on the next year. You know, you're ready for next fall, even if your team's going to win three games. Well, that's um, because Mississippi State is a blue blood football program, so it makes it's. <laughs> you I, said I, it. I'm I following your logic. <laughs> you but, laid it out there for me. You know, it's like, when, but but you know, it's like people become may become apathetic over the season, but like every season, it's kind of the cliched sports narrative of like you can't, you don't know what's going to happen until it happens, and like every season brings a new hope or whatever you want to call it, and like. Things happen. It's crazy. Like it's it's wild. So I think that you know, with that, I think it's really cool because people always kind of have this semblance of hope that their team's going to be better next year, even if they're not. And you know, Arkansas fans might beg to differ, but like, point being, like, it, it's a really cool it's a really cool atmosphere in that sense that you know it, it really is incessant. And I think there's something really cool about that. Speaking of things happening, um, you know, a certain game happened on Thanksgiving night that you were a part of and were able to cover in person. Just from someone who, again, this is one of your first real Ole Miss Mississippi State experiences. Walk us through that experience for you, just covering that from the game itself to the sequence leading up to it, to obviously the aftermath that was insane. Yeah, so I will say that probably tags into the what surprised me, and I probably should have added this earlier, but like the Ole Miss Mississippi State rivalry is unlike anything I'd ever seen, and people talk it up and you take it with a grain of salt, just because that's how I look at things. I tend to be slightly pessimistic, just because you got to be a little bit objective. And I think in turn, I, I will say, like I think in terms of pure hatred between two fan bases, I'm not sure there's two sets of fans that literally hate each other with that much disgust and disdain as much as Mississippi State, Mississippi State, Mississippi Ole Miss fans do. Like oh, sorry, is, you said it right the first time. Mississippi <laughs> Ole Miss, yeah. That's not it. <laughs> Whatever you want to call it. So I think just from that basis, that's a whole thing in itself. But so in terms of the actual game, you know, you're sitting there, you're thinking, you know, Mississippi State's pretty much got it in the bag. It's close. You know, Mississippi State had had an issue all year with putting teams away, even when they were ahead. You know, even when they were ahead, you kind of felt like the other team was still in it, even if they shouldn't have been. Even if it was a two-score game, you kind of still felt like they were hanging around. And, you know, the pat, the play that, like, the whole thing when it spirals, Matt Corral throws whatever it was, like a 65-yard pass down the field on a ball that had no business being caught because as a defensive back, you're taught, you know, don't let anyone behind you on a four, fourth and 26 when they're trying to get 80 yards downfield. Like, it, it's not an overly complicated – you don't need to be a football head to understand that. And <laughs> – you know, throws this ball up. It's a little bit undershot. Some, someone, you know, goes up and catches it. And all of a sudden Ole Miss is driving down and they're going to win the football game. And it just – the entire – the last, like, 30 seconds of that game, you could write a novel about. Because, you know, people always joke, and I think this is kind of a sports writer's joke, but, you know, blowouts are the best – are the games that sports writers love the best because your story's done by halftime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Close games are tough because if you don't know what's going to happen, you know, you're pegging and pinging in the, you know, in your laptop till the result's over. And like when things happen in the last four seconds, you got to rewrite half your story. So um, it was definitely wild trying to manage all that on a dead tight deadline that night. Um, but you know, the kick goes wide and I, I will say, and I will swear by you it. You glossed I, over the, the roughing the passer call. That was garbage also. Right. There was a roughing the passer call. Just gift so after gift to the Rebs. I mean, it was insane. There was really, like, I mean, there was so much to be said about that final, like, minute and a half. But the kid, I mean, I will swear by it. I looked over at my sports editor, and I, I will take this to my grave that I looked over at him and said, he's going to miss this kick. And, <laughs> you know, there was kind of a feeling in the press box that he was going to mix it. Mm-hmm. Like, 
I just don't think anyone actually believed they were going to make that kick. That Ole Miss, oh, Ole Miss fans around the world were turned the TV off and were, were going to bed because they were not going to watch. We've you seen know, this story way too many times. Yep. Yeah, and like you see it, and it goes wide, and I mean, it was just pandemonium. Like, look, I have no rooting stake in Ole Miss Mississippi State. I don't care who wins. I just want something I'll see there. that's good. I mean, I had goosebumps. Like, it, it, it really – or, you know, chill bumps, whatever you call them in Mississippi, right? I think I'm going to get called out for I didn't that. I know that was a thing. I thought yeah. it was called goosebumps. You learned something okay. like that? My girlfriend's from Amory, Mississippi, and she swears by it that it's chill bumps. So, I, I'll throw that out there for that. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, so, like, I mean, I had goosebumps sitting there listening and watching this happen. I mean, it was one of those moments that, like, you always think – you remember where you were you remember that exact moment and I remember just looking around and like you could see like when you looked at the student section I mean it looked like a wave like that people were just going up and down and up and down and like I I mean I'd never seen anything like it it was insane um and and I think that at the same time you kind of get a get a sense of uh you get some adrenaline you get writing whatever and it was really cool I mean that was definitely one of my favorite games to write and cover and you know you get into the – and then all of a sudden you get into the media room. You're walking across the field. First of all, so, like, the way that Davis Wade works as a sports mm-hmm. writer, the press box is basically at center – at the 50-yard line, and you have to go, like, down four, three or four floors and then cross the field diagonally to get to the media room. So it's kind of like on the other end of the earth to get to the media room. So generally speaking, you go down to the – you go downstairs with, like, three minutes left. Now, obviously, this game wasn't in debt, was in doubt, so I hung around and waited to sort of type something up to get something online quickly after the game was over. But, you know, I'm going from the press box to try and get down, downstairs past people, you know. You're, like, running with a laptop and a piece of paper or a notebook in your hand, trying to, like, kind of throwing elbows, just trying to get through fans as you're trying to get across the field to get to, get to uh, you know, Joe Moorhead's press conference. And then you get over there, and there's cigar smoke everywhere in the media room, and Joe Moorhead says they're going to have to drag my Yankee ass out of here. So it, it just, it like, I think it almost gets lost in how absurd that entire last sequence was that like the press conference itself afterward was sheer insanity. Just like some of the quotes that came out of it. And, you know, Joe Moorhead is as good a guy as is out there. I love Joe Moorhead. Great guy. But it was just wild. Like th- there really wasn't any way, other way to explain it. And trying to put that whole thing into words was definitely tough, but it was, uh, I guess that's what, what I'm paid to do, but it was wild. I, I, I liked Joe Moorhead, um, but it seemed like there wasn't a guy that could that did a worse job of reading the room with the crowd that he was like. For whatever reason, Mississippi State fans did not like Joe Moorhead as like you know writ large. For whatever <laughs> reason, come on. I mean, I I, think that- I didn't have a problem with Joe Moorhead. I I think that, but I think that a lot of people had a problem with. It just couldn't get behind him for what, you know. It felt like you were following a – I mean, it's hard to follow a great coach like Dan Mullen. Sure. I mean, there's going to be a statue of, the, of Dan Mullen outside of the football stadium one day. I mean, like, it's – but I, I don't know. Like, does that your impression, Ben, that, like, he just didn't get it? I don't think that was the case because I think that – I will say that I find that this is one of the biggest things that was overblown about the Joe Moorhead era is that he wasn't the right fit. And I, I think that that – don't get me wrong. I think fit is. So they found a swashbuckling guy, a, a Mormon right. from Utah or, or Wyoming yeah, I mean, that lives you know, in Key West to be yeah. the better cultural fit. Right. Exactly. And that's what I was going to say is that like, I, I, I do, I will say like, I think fit is wildly important. And I think that that is something that does like, 
is a big factor in whether coaches can succeed and, you know, you're bringing your own culture and that kind of thing. People forget Dan Mullins from Pennsylvania too. Dan Mullins, not an sec guy. I mean, yes, he coached at Florida, but like the point is Dan Mullen wasn't some, you know, wasn't from, you know, Senatobia or whatever. Like the point is like Dan Mullen is a Northern guy that came down. And I think that that was something that got overblown with Joe Moorhead is that like, you know, it's this Yankee coming down South. And I don't think that was necessarily true. Dan Mullen early in his career got in a lot of trouble for being or not being nice enough to, to high school coaches and other, like he was cold. I just, so, I mean, I get it. Yeah. And I think there's something in, I think there's something interesting in that. And I think that but like, it also helps that he took his team. He won as many games as he did and right. built a new football stadium and, you know, basically turned Starkville around. Right. Now, what I will say is that I think that there were problems in Joe Moorhead. The things that became Joe Moorhead's problems was you had the off the field issues, whether, you know, that was his, fault or not remains to be seen but you know as the figurehead of a program it's going to be lumped on you and that's how things work I get that but you also had you know a team that lat in 2018 and obviously I wasn't here for 2018 so I can't speak for it a ton but when you look at on paper what that team had that's probably a team that wins 10 games and realistically the thing that held that team back was the offense I mean and I think that Joe Moorhead's offense was complex and I think it was interesting and I think it works certain places and I think it work, doesn't work other places. Like I really wouldn't be shocked to see it work at Oregon. I wouldn't be shocked to see Joe Moorhead end up with another head coaching job in the next three, five years. Like I think it's going to happen. And I think Joe Moorhead's going to have success because I, I think that something that people don't necessarily understand sometimes too is like Joe Moorhead's a really smart guy. Like, he knows everything in that playbook, like the back of his hand. And I mean, I know coaches that way are like that, but like at that level are like that. But we did a chalk talk with Joe uh, probably halfway through the year last year. Actually, excuse me, it was in uh, preseason camp. It was over the summer. And Joe had a bunch of the media, a couple of media members come in and he literally like ran through a couple of RPO concepts with us to try and sort of give us an idea of like how this stuff works. And I played high school football. So like I get some of this stuff and it's not, you know, I, I don't pretend to be an X's and O goose guru by any sense, but like there was a lot happening on every single play, <laughs> like just from a base level, there's a lot happening. And I think that with the understanding that Joe had of it, I mean, he really does get this offense and he does believe in it. And the reality is it worked. I mean, now, whether you want to attribute that to the fact that he had, you know, eight future NFL players on that Penn state offense, when it clicked, that's a whole thing in itself. But you know, I, I think the biggest death spell to Joe Moorhead to actually get back to the question is that the offense was a problem. It continued to be a problem the year after. And I think that when you coupled the fact that the thing that Mississippi that was screwing over Mississippi State was that the offense was a problem, which the coach who was brought in was supposed to bring and improve, became broke the camel's back, combined with the stuff that happened off the field. I think it just sort of blew up in his face a little bit. Yeah, and I don't think Mississippi State fans forgot that Joe Moorhead was smart because I think it was rammed down their throats for two, two and a half years, however long. But every day, it's like, well, you know, smartest guy in football, you know, got to be. He was a sports writer. He was an English major. Like, he speaks another language. Like, like who cares? Like, if you're not, if you're not winning and if you're not, if you're not, if you're supposed to be an offensive guru and you come in and your offense is abysmal, like, it, that's a, that's a shortcoming. Go ahead. And I think people were just apathetic toward it because, like, I think you got to a point where people just sort of stopped caring. And I think when you look at that Louisville game in the Music City Bowl, like, you expected them to come out with a few wrinkles and stuff. And I think they ran some kind of trick play in, like, the fourth quarter. I can't – it was, like, a double reverse pass or something like that. I can't remember off the top of my head exactly what it was. But it was something along those lines. And it was like, okay, well, why didn't you pull this out in the second quarter? I know, you know, some of it dictates what where you're at in the chains and things like that. But, like, the point is, this is a bowl game. Throw things out the window, like – 
I don't want to say you were coaching for your job. It's not necessarily true. But, like, the point is, like, this thing was not headed in a positive direction. If you end the season seven and six, Joe Moorhead's probably still the head coach at Mississippi State right now. There has been some movement uh, in a school up north, as the kids say, in the Golden Triangle. Your thoughts, your chair on what's going on with Lane Kiffin and Ole Miss, and, and do you see that playing out successfully, or do you think uh, that's going to be a, a long road ahead? Yeah, I mean, I think, like, I, I mean, first off, I won't pretend to be an Ole Miss expert. I, you know, <laughs> I spend most of my time in Starkville, despite the fact that I do, I, you know, I've got some buddies up in, in Oxford and this, that, whatever, but um, – you know, I think that at the very least, it's going to make it entertaining. You've got guys like Mike Leach and Lane Kiffin in the state playing each other yearly. Um, I think that's going to be really fun. But I think that I think the difference between what Mike Leach is walking into and what Lane Kiffin is walking into is just I think that Lane Kiffin has a slightly has slightly more of a rebuild than Lane than Mike Leach. I mean, I don't think that's because that Ole Miss hasn't recruited well or you know doesn't have talent on its roster. It does, but. I mean, when you look at it on a surface level, Ole Miss was the only school in the SEC that didn't have a player drafted this year in the NFL draft. Now, who that's an indictment on, whether it's Matt Luke or, you know, before that in the NCAA investigation, who's to say? I mean, I think it's a lot of combinations. But I think that the reality is I think that Ole Miss has a slightly more upward, you know, has a little bit more of a hill to climb. But I think that also Lane Kiffin has proved that he can call plays in the SEC. I mean, you look what he did with Alabama's offense when he was there you know, for the, what was it, two, three years that he was under Nick Saban. I mean, he brought Alabama's offense into the 21st century, brought some spread concepts into it. And I know that, you know, Lane will do a lot of multiple things. He's not going to be kind of a one-trick pony. Um, you know, I think he'll incorporate a lot of different things into his offense. But the point is, like, I, I think that at the same time, he's going to have to recruit talent. And I think Lane can do that. I think that Ole Miss is going to be able to recruit more nationally because I think that Lane Kiffin is a national name. Um, but I think that it might take an extra year, an extra two years. I think that, you know, this isn't to say that the cupboard's completely bare because there are talented players on that roster, don't get me wrong. Um, but I think that it'll take – I think it's slightly more of a rebuild than what Mississippi State and Mike Leach is walking into. Mm-hmm. Slightly off topic here, you did say you cover specifically Mississippi State, and, and that's been your focus And as a journalist. I was just curious – um, just the state of the industry right now and where things are headed in someone in your position where you probably uh, anticipated having a role like you have and growing from there to now it's evolved to you have to have many different skill sets beyond just the writing itself potentially. What's it like in 2020 beyond the fact that we had this pandemic happening, being a sports journalist in particular and, and where um, you see the industry going in the future? Yeah, it's definitely a unique spot. And I think that, you know, I, I think my – thing is I like to tend to be I tend to be a little more optimistic on it and I think that some of that's young naivety you know I'm 23 24 years old but at the same time like this is a you know it's a business that's in a tough spot and I think there's no way around that you know you see you know newspapers closing up shop left and right but I think that like the difference is with sports and I think that's what's unique about sports is that people are gonna read sports till the end of time Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, that's not an indictment on news by any stretch of the imagination. Obviously, news is wildly important and generally speaking is more important than what's happening in sports. But I think that um, I think that sports is a niche that people latch onto, And there's deep rooted, deep rooted cultural, a deeply rooted cultural impact in sports mm-hmm. that I think you don't have in different in other aspects. So for that, I would say that there will always be a place to read sports. What it is, I don't know. If I knew, I'd make a lot more money than I do now. 
But at the same time, like the reality is I think that people will always want to be read sports in some capacity, what that will be, who knows. But I think that like, when you look at it, people will always have some kind of place to read that. I think that, you know, the athletics a perfect example of something mm-hmm. that is new and different, but I think that has proven that people are willing to pay for premium sports content. I think that, you know, sports illustrated in the past has been that, you know, it, it just changes and it's a shifting industry that doesn't necessarily have a clear direction right now. And I think that's partially because of, you know, things that happened 10, 15, 20 years before now, and now it's just kind of coming to the surface. But I think that when you look at it as an industry as a whole, again, people are going to read sports in some capacity. And I think that that, at least for the side of like sports departments nationwide, even if they are trimming back some, I think that you will see, you know, sports journalism exist in some capacity. You know, yeah, and even beyond just the consuming of the written word, it's mm-hmm. what you do as well and what we're doing yeah. on the same platform. Their podcasts were not a thing 20 years ago. The yeah. industry has evolved into other ways where it might have been you followed maybe an article or two daily if you're a beat writer. Um, now it's turned into your full day has some sort of content element to it, whether it's Twitter, whether it's podcasting. You probably never thought uh, 20 years ago as a journalist you'd have to learn how to record and edit video, but that's the reality of this situation. Is that what you're seeing on your end? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think like when I was in school and, you know, again, I just graduated about a year and a half ago now, a little more, like we were always taught the thing that we were taught in journal in, you know, journalism school is that you want to be multifaceted. You got to be able to do other stuff. Now that said, you know, I'm a writer first. That's what I want to do. That's what I, you know, I like to hang my hat on, but at the same time, you know, during the season, we do a weekly podcast where we have guests kind of like this. Um, You know, we've started doing more stuff with Twitter, you know, Twitter, I mean, is a whole thing in itself. And, you know, I think that it it can be, (laughs) it can be, it's a smaller, I think, majority of people than I think people realize, you know, I I would say that like most newspapers and most places see more of their content, more of their views and things come from things like Facebook, just because it has a larger contingent of people on it. And that's just how it works. But, you know, breaking news on Twitter is a huge thing. Things that happen, you know, Twitter allows you to interact with people in real time. It allows you to have you know, discussions with fans, get in touch with people, that kind of thing. Like I think about 20 years ago, 30 years ago, so flipping through a Rolodex, you know, I'm looking and seeing if someone's on Twitter and seeing if I can DM them for something like a, a recruit a high school coach, this, that, whatever. Like it, it just, it's easy. It makes us more interconnected. And I think that, you know, it's things that you have to learn. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. I won't pretend to be some expert on it by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, I I think you do have to do a lot more. I mean, you know, when I was in school, I, you know, wrote for the school paper and a number of other places, but I also did a weekly radio show. I also did TV broadcasts almost weekly during the spring. Um, You know, I, you know, that's not that what I did was perfect. And, you know, other people aren't doing more than me. I think there are, but at the same time, like we were told to learn, you know, the things that we were taught were to be multifaceted so that you are able to sort of, for lack of a better term, sell yourself. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot to be said for that, because I think that, you know, I think that's where you see the divide between younger people in the business and older people. And, you know, it's natural in any time and age, but like, especially now where, you know, people my age have grown up on the internet have grown up with Twitter and Facebook and whatever. And even younger than that, you know, I've got a brother who's four years behind me and he's even more like in tune with everything than I am. And so I, I think that, you know, when you have sports writers who are 60 years old and they're asked, being asked to work on Twitter, or do a Facebook live, you're like, what the hell are you talking about? So it's, it's just different and it's changed, but I think there's a lot of good that comes from it. I, I really do. I think it allows you to be, it allows you to get your stuff out there more. I think that, you know, 
you know, our paper is uh, not that big overwhelmingly. I mean, there's a 25,000 circulation, but at the same time, like circulation doesn't matter as much because the internet is, <laughs> it can go anywhere. Like if you write something good, people are going to read it and mm-hmm. it's going to circulate. Like it, it, it's not to say that you don't want to work at bigger places and have a bigger audience. That's obviously a huge thing and is a really, really beneficial thing to have. But the point is that, you know, it, it allows people I would say it allows people in smaller markets to be able to, you know, reach wider audiences. I think it allows newspapers and other outlets to sort of target who they're going, they can kind of, you know, see who's reading stuff for how long, what's working. Um, Now, should views and clicks drive everything? No, I think there's more to it than that. But I think that, you know, that doesn't sacrifice good writing. And if you write something good and it doesn't get 10 million clicks, that doesn't mean it was terrible. (laughs) Like, I don't think that's the truth, but I think that, it is an interesting thing in that like Twitter, Facebook live, you know, radio spots, podcasts. I mean, you know, I didn't think that I'd be editing audio on a weekly basis and I do it before our podcast. Like it's just, it's just different and you just have to be able to do a lot of that stuff. And I think it's just kind of, <laughs> kind of accepted as the time we live in and, you know. Yeah. And it seems like it's an equalizer. I think that's what you're saying, right? It's just, it's being able, it, it levels the playing field for for smaller newspapers or smaller outlets. And I think that's awesome. And I think that I also think that it's interesting. Um, it, it seems that the way that sports writing and journalism in general has changed in the past 10 years uh, has probably prepared you to exist in this thing that we're living in now. I mean, being able to do it remotely and communicating with people without being in a press conference, like a formal press conference or formal press setting or even sitting in an office somewhere. I mean, I doubt how often do you go to the newsroom at the, at the dispatch? I mean, and, and it's just, and especially now. So it, is that, do you find that to be true? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think like, you know, in a time like now when things aren't, you know, there aren't games to go to, people always ask, and I think it's common misconception, I think I said it earlier, that, you know, nothing's happening. But at the same time, like recruiting's still happening and I can still go on Twitter and if some guy commits to Mississippi State tomorrow, I can still reach out to him or call his high school coach or whatever. And like, those are ways to still turn out good quality sports content that, you know, you, you would want anyway. And I think, you know, would be happening even if there were games being played. And I think that's the thing that's interesting is that, you know, the way I look at it is like the things that I enjoy writing the most. And I think that I'd like to think that the things that people like reading the most are, you know, it's a sports story, but it's about people. And I think that's the stuff that I think is most influential and most beneficial to, to read. I think it's the stuff that's the most powerful. You know, I think my favorite story I wrote this year was about um, a wounded veteran who walked across the field at Davis Wade stadium. And it, it was, you know, this whole backstory of how, you know, he had his legs blown off by an IED in Iraq and had gone through some homelessness and stuff like that. And Mississippi, and he got connected with Mississippi state through a, a veterans fund had come on campus because the fraternity was going to get him the right, this powerful wheelchair that he needed. And they'd coordinated with the athletic department to get him walk on the field during halftime of the LSU game. So like, yes, it involved a football game, but it was about more than that. It was about human nature. It was about whatever else you want to sacrifice, you know, patriotism, whatever you want to call it. So like the point is that I, I think that, you know, those stories are still there. And I think that, you know, you don't need a game for those things to happen. I think that's a misconception is that, just because a game isn't happening doesn't mean there aren't stories to be told. And I think, frankly, the best stories are ones that happen outside of games. I think they're the ones that happen by, you know, I mean, you have to, the, the, the journalistic jargon that, you know, you're taught in school is you want to bear witness to history. And I think, you know, there's a piece of that in watching games and things that unfold. But at the same time, you want to tell the stories of people and like give voice to people who don't necessarily have a voice. 
from your perspective, give me or give us the listeners just your own impressions on the last dance doc and how they portrayed that particular period of sports, but also from a journalist's point of view, what did you enjoy about how they told the story and what were some takeaways that you really uh, wanted to showcase tonight? And narrow that just, just a touch. Is Michael Jordan the goat? Okay, I'm going to preface this by saying that I haven't watched the last four episodes, so I'm terrible on that front. I've watched the first six. Uh, I'm catching up. Bad, bad yeah. podcast already. Bad podcast. This part out. It will happen. That said, I think that I'll get to the GOAT debate later. But I think that, like, I, I think it's a really interesting story. I think they did a really good job with it. I think it clearly, you know, showcases a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff that, you know, no one would ever know or see. And I think it humanizes these people, like, I think that's the thing that I think gets lost in translation sometimes, you know, from as a sports writer to public, whoever, Joe Schmo, like these coaches and players and whatever, like trainers, they're people. And I think that like, you know, you sometimes see these people put on a pedestal and Michael Jordan is the ultimate example of this. I mean, he's, you know, the pinnacle of, of professional basketball. And people see him more of a, as like a figurehead or, or an idea or an ideal versus like the actual person, you know, when you have Michael Jordan sitting back in his leather chair, sipping whiskey and smoking a cigar and, you know, making wisecracks about Rodman or Carl Malone or whoever the hell, like, it's really cool because I think it humanizes people and I think it lets people see that. And I think those are the things that I think make, make interesting stories. And I think the people who did put together the last dance have done a really good job with that. Um, and I think that's the most interesting thing about it is like you take people where no one else, where you wouldn't be able to see. And I think that's something, you know, that's one of the best pieces of advice that I was ever given is that when you're writing a feature or something like that, take people where they can't go. Like whether that's in the locker room, in the hallway, under the stadium, in the press room, whatever it is, like take people so- somewhere where they can't actually see it without reading or watching or whatever you're doing. And I think that the last dance is a perfect job of that because it, you know, it takes you into Michael Jordan's hotel room as he's sitting there smoking a cigar, eating a pizza and drinking wine or whatever before a game. Like, that, that stuff's really cool because where else would you see that mm-hmm. or, or read it or whatever? And I think those are the things that makes it, make it so powerful and so compelling is that it really does give you sort of that behind the scenes look that I think we all hoped it would be and, and it proved to be that. Meantime, Ben, how can people find you either online or on Twitter or the other aforementioned platforms you do have? Yeah, definitely. Uh, just at bportnoy15 at gmail or at bportnoy15 is my Twitter handle. That's probably your best bet. Um, before most people Great. ask, not related to Barstool Portnoy, different different families, same name, different family. Get that a lot, so I'll clear that up for people just there, just so that's out there. But uh, but yeah, at B Portnoy fifteen, you'd probably have a lot more followers if you were related to. You know, I wonder that, and I also wonder like how many people follow me because they think I'm related to Dave Portnoy. Thanks to Ben for stopping by tonight. For everyone who made it this far in the podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the Heated and Loaded pod on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. Also follow us on Instagram and at Heated and Loaded. See y'all next time and stay safe.